You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. In today's class, class number five in this course on the sacraments, we're going to be speaking about the sacrament of apostolic ministry, or holy orders. Before we talk about this sacrament, I just want to make a little distinction in the way we use the word ministry. Ministry is a word that can be used for lay people in what they do, and it can also be used for ordained people in what they do. Ministry really means service. And in church documents, if you look over church documents of various kinds, you can see that anything associated with the liturgy is usually called a ministry. There's the lay ministry of acolyte and of lector. There's the ministry of the person who leads music. So, you know, ministry is used for a variety of people ordained and lay having to do with the actual liturgy. You also find the word ministry used for what parents do. It says in Familiaris Consortio, which is a wonderful document written by John Paul II about marriage and the family, he talks about parents' care for their children as a true ministry. So the word ministry is not exclusively used for ordained people. But in the Catholic Church, we do use ministry mostly for ordained persons in terms of the language we use. And I think it's best to use the phrase that's used by the Catechism. Catechism number 1536 calls Holy Orders the Sacrament of Apostolic Ministry. And I think that really helps to understand what Holy Orders is about. It's about the continuance in our midst of the special ministry given to the Apostles, the Apostles of Christ, to shepherd the Church, to lead and govern it, to serve as the Church's High Priest, to lead worship, and also to proclaim the Word of God and carry out the apostolic ministry of proclamation, of carrying on the teaching of the gospel in the church. That's what the apostolic ministry is about. And the sacrament of holy orders is that sacrament whereby this authority and the power to continue this apostolic ministry is passed on from successive age to age in the church. The area of sacraments is the area where Catholics and various Protestant communities disagree most. There are many things in which we have perfect agreement. You know, on the Trinity, for example, most historic Christian churches are completely one with the Catholic and Orthodox churches on understanding the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are a variety of areas in the creed where we are really one. But when it comes down to the understanding of the church and the understanding of ordained ministry, that's where we have some differences of opinion. So we just need to understand that one's understanding of holy orders, of how to conceive of the leaders of the church and what they do and what they are, that is to a great degree a function of one's ecclesiology or one's understanding of the church itself. Okay, so I want to just point out from the very beginning that in the Protestant Reformation, all the Protestant communities, with the exception of the Anglicans, all the Protestant communities significantly retooled their understanding of ministry, of ordained ministry. Okay? For Catholics, ordained people have a distinct power that's transmitted in the sacrament of penance. Ordained people are ordained to a permanent ministry, ordained men. Okay? So whether one is a deacon or a priest or a bishop, it is a permanent relationship with Christ in the church that one can never just walk away from. One can be inactive, but one cannot just cease being a priest or a bishop or a deacon. And there are different grades, as I just mentioned, priest, 
deacon, bishop, or different grades or different ministries within holy orders. Now, in the Protestant Reformation, number one, there's not a, the same idea of a transfer of sacred power. There's not a same idea of gradation of different ministries. Luther was against having bishops, generally speaking, because he saw no biblical justification for difference between well, you know, one grade of minister and another. Also, the idea of permanence is lost. Pretty much in Protestant communities, the ordained minister is a professional who's been set apart and authorized by the community to perform a function. He doesn't have a special kind of sacred power, and it's not necessarily a permanent thing. So I just want you to have in mind the difference between Catholics and Protestants on this issue because in going over the biblical evidence, I just want to point out why Catholics, where they see justification for these things. First and foremost, when we look at the Old Testament, we have to see that God is the shepherd of his people. He is the governor. He is the one who leads his people. But from the very beginning, he chooses leaders through which he exercises his leadership. In other words, they are his instruments in shepherding his people. We see this with Moses. Moses and Aaron, okay, Psalm 77, 20. The psalmist says to God, you guided your people like a flock. But then it goes on to add, by the hands of Moses and Aaron. God is shepherding his people from Egypt. He brings them through the desert into the promised land, but he does it through the instrumentality of Moses and Aaron. So I think that's important to understand in the history of God's people that God is the king, he is the shepherd, he is the pastor, but he uses human instruments to shepherd and pastor his people. Another thing to point out is that Moses, the great leader of God's people in the desert, found that it was too much for him. His father Jethro pointed out, his father-in-law, that he needed assistance. So there was the 70 elders that were appointed and filled with the Spirit in a wonderful experience, and they were filled with the Spirit to help Moses judge and lead the people. Moses had to judge cases. He had to decide on issues, and he delegated that responsibility to the 70 elders, but they weren't just functionaries. They were empowered by the Holy Spirit. And you can read about that in Numbers chapter 11, verses 24 to 25. So what we see here is two things, different levels of leadership, and those leaders are empowered by God through an infusion of the Holy Spirit to carry out their function. Now we also, later on, we see that the leaders of God's people, the pastors, the shepherds, are kings. You know, we have judges for a while after people get into the promised land. You know, Moses dies, and then we have Joshua, and then finally the judges. But then the judges aren't sufficient. The people petition God for the monarchy, for kings, like other people have kings. And the king is called shepherd of his people. He is a mediator between God and his people. God uses him to speak to the people and lead the people. And he stands before God in place of the people as their advocate. They are called and chosen by God. It's not simply a question of somebody being the firstborn son of somebody else. Saul, who was chosen king by the prophet Samuel, okay? Saul, who was chosen by God and blows it. And his whole line is eliminated. The prophet Samuel then, when Saul is still alive but has lost favor with God, Samuel is sent by God to a family, and it's not the oldest son that's chosen, it's the least likely to succeed, the young boy David who's chosen and anointed as king. And when David's about to be succeeded, he has multiple wives, it's not the oldest son that's going to succeed him, it's the one chosen by God, and that is Solomon. And from then on, it's not the oldest son, it's this idea of God choosing one of many, 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 many princes to be the next reigning king. 
So there's an idea here that it's an issue of vocation. It's an issue of special call and designation by God. The king is anointed. He's anointed with special oil, chrism, and that oil is a sign of God's favor. It's a sign also of the infusion of strength. Oil is kept in a horn, a bull's horn, which is a symbol of strength. Okay? And when that anointing happens, in the case of David, for example, when the oil is put on David's head, it says in the scriptures that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that moment. So the anointing with oil is just not a sign, but it's an instrument of an infilling of the Holy Spirit that empowers the office holder, here it is David, to carry out his mission, his responsibility. Okay, so that's the pastoral care or governance of God's people, Moses, the kings. Let's look at the priesthood. From the very beginning, God institutes a special priesthood. Now this is fascinating because the whole people of Israel is called a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, in Exodus 19.6. This is the beginning of the people of Israel as a nation, as a special chosen people. They're brought by God to the foot of the mountain of Sinai, and they're called a priestly people. Despite the fact that the whole people is priestly, God elevates from the midst of those people a special class of ministerial priests. And they're all the sons of Aaron. They're from the tribe of Levi. So there's a hereditary priesthood that's official. And that priesthood functions to serve the priestly people. Okay? And if you want to read what the ideal of the priest is in his role in the Old Testament era, the best place to look is Sirach. 45. Sirach 45 reviews all the things that priests do. And let me read a little bit of that for you. Okay? First of all, I want to point out that Sirach 45 shows that the priesthood is not something that's a temporary office. When you're born into the family of a priest, you are a priest, and you're a priest for the rest of your life. Okay? But also, let me go over some of the things that they do. They wear special vestments, it says in Sirach 45. Okay? They're anointed with holy oil, with sacred chrism. And here's some of the tasks of a priest. Number one, a priest blesses in God's name. He blesses the people. Number two, he offers sacrifice. Number three, he atones for sin. He does special sacrifices to atone for and deal with sin. Next, he teaches the people the law the tradition of the ancestors, the word of God that comes from the scriptures. And finally, the priest governs God's people. That is something that happened after, particularly after the kings were eliminated by the Babylonians in the 6th century. After that point, there was no reigning king in Israel. When they came back to the promised land allowed by the Persians, they built the temple, they built the city, but they did not try to institute a new kingship, a new family. The kingly family had died out, and so the people were ruled in large part by the priests, and we see this in uh, the New Testament. It was the high priest, and mainly priests, who sat on that Sanhedrin there that condemned Jesus to death. It's important to understand all the different roles of priests in the Old Testament. If you want to read more about priests, I refer you once again to Roland DeVoe's Ancient Israel, Volume 2, Religious Institutions. Now, let's look at the New Testament. That's the Old Testament, the leadership of God's people, pastorally and in the way of worship. Let's look in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we see that Jesus' priesthood is unique. It's different from the Levitical priesthood. He's the one perfect high priest, and he offers one perfect sacrifice, which is his own life. Now, 
In the New Testament, the only people who are called priests, the word yerus is a Greek word for priest. That word is used for Jesus in Hebrews, and it's used for the whole people by St. Paul, by the first letter of Peter. 1 Peter 2.9, the priests are set apart to offer spiritual sacrifices. But I want to point something else out. Okay, the spiritual sacrifice that everyone offers is oneself. Okay, Romans 12, offer one's body as a living sacrifice to God, your spiritual worship. So that's the role of the whole people. As members of Christ's body, we share in his priesthood, we offer ourselves a sacrifice of praise to God. But, you know, at the same time, there are special ministers set apart, just like in the Old Testament. Paul talks about the apostles as servants of Christ and administrators of the mysteries of God. I want to point out again that the word mystery is the word that's used also to convey sacrament and convey the ceremonies whereby God's saving power is made present again. Okay, so we have this idea that Christ is a priest. All the people, the New Testament people, are a priestly people. But at the same time, there's a special class of leaders Paul doesn't call them priests. The New Testament doesn't call them priests. And that's one of the issues in the Reformation. Why aren't they called priests? But nonetheless, they lead the priestly people. They're administrators and stewards of the mysteries of God. We see that prominent among these leaders, of course, are the twelve. Christ has many disciples. And out of the disciples, he chooses twelve. And they're called the twelve. And in Luke, they're also called the apostles. Why the number twelve? Well, because God's people were founded by 12 patriarchs, the 12 sons of Jacob, okay, the 12 tribes. So in designating 12, Jesus is showing that he's founding a new Israel, and that new Israel fulfills the old Israel. There are 12 patriarchs of that new Israel, which are called apostles. Now the word apostle is an interesting word. Christ is the first apostle. Apostle means someone who is sent, and the Father sends Christ. Catechism 858. You know, he is the emissary of the Father. But Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you, he says to the twelve. Okay, that's John 20, 21. So we have a little problem, though, in terminology, because although the twelve are called the apostles, there are other people called apostles also. And that would be Paul, would be Barnabas, and a few others. So the apostles are a larger group than the twelve. They expand. And there's also another group of ministers in the New Testament. Jesus sends out the 12, but he also has a group of the 70. And that's fascinating because the elders or the assistants to Moses early on were the 70 also. So there's a lesser class of assistants or ministers that we can even see in the Gospels. Let's talk about the successors of these first ministers, the successors of the apostles and maybe the 70. When Paul goes around with Barnabas and establishes churches in Asia Minor and Galatia and other places, when they leave town, someone has to lead the church locally in their absence. Who's going to do it? Well, there's a board of men that are chosen, and they're called a variety of things. Two names are used in the New Testament. Bishops or episkopoi, that means overseers. It would be easy to translate it superintendent, because superintendent is someone who looks over and watch, oversees, okay? So they're overseers. But there's also another word used, presbyters, which means elders. The word presbyter leads to the word priest. The English word priest directly is a short form of presbyter. So Paul and Barnabas institute a group of men 
called presbyters or bishops. It seems that there's no clear differentiation in the first century between those two terms. And this group of people leads the church in their absence. They impose hands on these people. So they're set apart. They're not just appointed, but there's prayer for them. They are ordained. The Lord comes and gives them a gift when hands are laid upon them. That's the idea of this whole transfer of power, of responsibility. Okay? So also, I'll just show you the word bishop, Philippians 1.1. That letter is written in the 50s. Acts of the Apostles, we don't know when it was written, but most scholars seem to think maybe the 80s. So an early reference, the earliest reference we have to this group of local ministers appointed by the apostles is in Philippians 1.1. The letter is addressed to the bishops along with the deacons of the church. So we see two classes of local ministers, bishops and men called deacons. The word deacon means servant or minister. Okay, And we actually see in Acts 6, 1 through 6, we see men who are set apart to help the apostles to assist the widows, Greek-speaking widows, in the Jerusalem church. And they help with charity, waiting on tables. The church ate in common oftentimes, especially when they celebrated the Lord's Supper. And these guys would actually wait on tables. Deacon could mean waiter. But they're not called deacons, but their work, their, the verb form of deacon, diaconine, is used to describe their work. Clearly, the deacons already exist when this is written. There's a group of men called deacons. And this story seems very much to have been intended to show the origin of these group of men, these deacons, who assist in the charitable work of caring for widows, also in helping in the liturgy, serving the Lord's Supper, serving the communion, and we find out very quickly after Acts 6 that these men also, many of them are eloquent evangelists and preachers. Stephen gives a very eloquent sermon before he is killed. And Philip evangelizes and teaches the Ethiopian eunuch, among others. So these group of lesser ministers who are meant to free up the apostles for more serious prayer and teaching, they're called deacons. So you have deacons in the New Testament, and you have presbyter and bishops who are, seem to be the same group of people. And there are groups in each local church. We're not clear exactly how and when there was a change here, but there was a change between this picture of traveling apostles with a local group of bishop presbyters and a local group of deacons in each church. There's a change here where by about the year 110, 115, there is all throughout Asia Minor and Syria, there is now a different structure where there is one man called bishop in each local church with presbyters being a class of advisors who help him and deacons being another group of ministers who help him. But there being one man known and set apart from the others and he's called bishop. That's universal. It becomes a universal practice in the second century. There's no place where it doesn't happen in the church from north, south, east, and west. But we just don't know when exactly it happened. Okay, now I have a theory of how it happened and a theory of why it happened, but again, it's only a theory. A theory is when you have certain data and there are gaps in the data and you try to make sense of the data. But here's my theory. The theory is in the 60s, when you had traveling apostle like Paul, he is the sole leader and director ultimately of the churches that he founds. And he stays in some of these churches for sometimes a couple of years, like in Ephesus. He's there for quite some time. And he trains some local people. And when he leaves, there's a board of elders who direct the church in his absence, but he still directs the church through his letters. So there is a single leader of the church who has apostolic dignity and apostolic authority. 
and a local group who assist him. But what happens when the traveling apostles have died? You know, in the 60s, Paul and Peter are martyred. By the 90s, tradition has it that only John is still alive. Well, what happens when no longer there's a traveling apostolic leader and figurehead with special overarching authority? What happens on the local scene? Well, there needs to be one person that has that overarching authority. So to me, it would be very logical that sometime from the 60s onward, the apostle would designate one local leader to be his successor, to have that overarching authority. And that person came to be known as bishop. Now, there's a letter in the 90s, the first letter of Clement, that talks about this apostolic succession and tells us the apostles knew there would be arguments over the succession of leadership in the church. And so the apostles actually intended and designated people to follow them. That's the first evidence we have of apostolic succession. And it was written by the Church of Rome and its leader, Clement, to the Church of Corinth. Okay? I think that corroborates my theory, but doesn't prove that everywhere that it happened that way. But I think that's as good as an explanation of any. The important thing to know is that by the second century, everywhere you have the same structure. You have one bishop assisted by a board of men called presbyters who do certain things, and another board of men called deacons who do other things. That's what we have historically. When it comes to apostolic succession, there's a very powerful text in the second century by St. Irenaeus, written around 185 AD. And that's in his book Against Heresies, book three, paragraph two, two. And he proves apostolic succession by giving us the list of the current Bishop of Rome all the way back to Peter. And he shows that there's an unbroken succession, transmission of teaching, of sound teaching. And his purpose in, in talking about this is to argue against a group of heretics known as the Gnostics, who claim to have special tradition that authorized their wild ideas that goes back to one of the apostles. And Irenaeus shows that, no, these guys don't have succession back to the apostles. It is the apostolic churches such as Rome that have that succession and therefore preserve true, authentic Christianity. Okay, but when we talk about apostolic succession as Catholics, we don't just mean the transmission of sound teaching. That's one facet of it. But the other is the transmission of authority and sacred power. The spirit that rushed upon David came through the hands of the prophet Samuel. And the way we understand apostolic succession is those with apostolic authority and power given by the spirit transmit that power in ordination. Not only that authority, not only the office, but also the sacred power. Sacra potestas is the Latin phrase that's used. And we find that Latin phrase in the uh, Second Vatican Council, Lumen Gentium. Okay? But that phrase is a classic phrase that explains what happens in the passing on of sacred authority and power in the great act of ordination. Let me point out that the leaders of the church who are leaders and pastors and teachers are also seen very early on as the high priests of the community. They're seen in light of the priests of the Old Testament who offer sacrifice. The central act of the Christian life from the first century onward is the Eucharistic celebration, which is understood as sacrifice. And therefore, since it is priests who offer sacrifice, and it's the leader, the bishop, who presides over the Eucharistic banquet that is celebrated in each church, he's seen as the high priest of the community. He's seen as prefigured in the Old Testament by the high priests who led Israel. And you see that again in as early as the 90s in the first letter of Clement, chapter 40. Really, that letter implies that the threefold 
the Levite, priest, and high priest distinction in the Old Testament, that threefold order prefigures the very order that we now have in the church of deacon, who's paired with Levite, of presbyter, who's paired with the Old Testament priest, and the bishop, who is paired with the Old Testament high priest. That threefold order, with some variations, is found everywhere in the ancient Christian world from the second century all the way to the 16th century. In the 16th century, the Protestant reformers deny that ordained persons have a special sacred power. Also, they deny that there's any difference between priest and bishop. Most groups abolish bishops, except for the Episcopalians or the Anglicans. Lutherans have a few bishops, but they're not seen and understood as having special power, power greater than the local pastor. Rather, they are superintendents. They are simply administrators with larger authority and prominence. Also, you find in the Protestant Reformation a denial of the visible dimensions of the church. You know, if you don't have a visible church, if a church is an invisible communion of believers, then you really don't need to have a visible ordained clergy that has special authority and power, really. Now, what Trent does, the Council of Trent in the 16th century, is answer the concerns of Protestants and reaffirm, really, the teaching of the Catholic Church in all the dimensions that we've spoken about thus far. The Second Vatican Council, in its treatment of ordained ministry, has a special intention, and that is to bring out particularly the role of bishop, and we'll talk about that in a minute. It also does something very practically. It restores the ministry of deacon as a permanent order that can be held by married men. So the permanent diaconate, men who are ordained, married men ordained unto diaconal ministry, receiving the sacrament of holy orders, who never intend to advance beyond that rank, but stay there as deacons. That's something that's reinstituted, had died out, but was reinstituted by the Second Vatican Council. Theologically, let's talk a little bit about the priesthood. However way you cut it, Christ is the only priest. Okay, there is no other priest than Christ. That is taught clearly by the Catholic Church in its tradition, in its official documents. Thomas Aquinas says it very clearly, and that's quoted in the Catechism. Only Christ is the true priest, the others being only his ministers, says St. Thomas, and that's cited in Catechism 1545. But we, as members of Christ's body, we share in everything that he is and has. We share in his priestly role, in his role as intercessor, one who consecrates the world to God, one who offers himself to God. We do all that. So all Christians share in his priesthood through their baptism and their confirmation. They consecrate the world to God. We lay people have a responsibility to ennoble and elevate every aspect of normal human life, consecrate it to God's service, and to offer ourselves with all things to God as a living sacrifice together with Christ. But there's a special ministerial priesthood that it really exists to enable us to fulfill our mission as lay people as people who are sharers in Christ's priestly dignity. Just like in the Old Testament, there's a special class of ordained ministerial priests that serve the priestly people and lead the priestly people in worship. So we have a class of people who have a ministry to enable us to exercise our ministry. They share in Christ's priesthood in a special way. They act in persona Christi, in the place of Christ, at the service of the common good and the common priesthood. I think that's the best way to conceptualize it looking at the tradition and the church's teaching. A couple of reflections on ordained ministry. Number one, ordained ministry is not class privilege. Those who are ordained ministers are ordained unto service. That's very clear in scripture. It's very clear in the teaching of the church. Ordained ministers are called to become slaves of all, in the words of St. Paul, 1 Corinthians 9, 19. 
So we're not talking about a privileged class here. The next thing is that ordination is clearly more than mere designation by the community. It's not just a matter of people getting elected to a temporary office, okay? That's very clear. There's something that is conveyed in ordination that is permanent. You see it in the Old Testament, where the 70 elders receive a gift of the Holy Spirit. You see it with the example in 1 Samuel 16, where David receives the gift of the Spirit when he's ordained or he's anointed unto kingship. You see it in 2 Timothy 1.6, in 1 Timothy 4, that someone who has hands laid on him for service to the community receives a spirit of power and love and self-control in order to be able to be equipped to serve the community. Now, there are three dimensions of ordained ministry. There's pastoral government, which is Christ's kingly role exercised by the clergy. There is the ministry of the word, which is Christ's prophetic mission. And there's sacramental ministry, leading the community in worship. That's priestly ministry. So those who are ordained are ordained to share in a special way in Christ's kingly, prophetic, and priestly roles. Another issue to just mention is in the Catholic Church, we see that pastoral government, the leadership, ordained leadership of the church, is a collegial affair. It's not a matter of one person alone acting, but of a team of people acting, a group, a college of people acting on every level to shepherd God's people. Christ called apostles, 12. But from those 12, he raised one, Peter, to be the leader and spokesman around which the others gather. So we see this on every level of the church's government. We have the successors of the apostles, the bishops, but they gather around the successor of Peter, who is the bishop of Rome. His role is to strengthen them, not supplant them, not to act apart from them, but rather to lead and shepherd them and be their spokesperson. On a local level, we have a college of presbyters or priests that help lead and shepherd the diocese, but it's the bishop who they assist, who is the ultimate leader. He exercises his leadership in collegiality with them in a certain way. On the local level, we see the same thing. And usually a pastor is assisted by various ordained and lay leaders who act collegially. But ultimately, the pastor has pastoral authority. So we see that kind of dialectic between collegial leadership and one who has ultimate authority at every level of the church's life. Let's talk about the three different orders for a minute. First of all, let's talk about bishop. The bishop is the successor of the apostle. The bishops alone have the fullness of apostolic ministry. They are the visible center and the sign of unity in a local diocese. A diocese is a group of people that is shepherded by a bishop who is called the ordinary. He has pastoral responsibility to lead and shepherd that diocese. And if he has other bishops assisting him, that is wonderful. But he is the ordinary, is the visible sign of unity of that diocese. And that diocese is understood as the local church. You cannot have a church properly so-called without a bishop. And that's why we really don't recognize the Protestant communities out there without bishops as being churches in the full theological sense of the word. It's not an insult by any means that we deny them that dignity or that terminology. The Protestant ecclesial communities out there are worthy of great honor and respect. But without a bishop, the fullness of church life cannot take place, the fullness of sacramental life. So we would recognize not a local parish. A local parish, a Catholic parish, is not a church properly so-called. It's the diocese that is the local church because only a diocese with a bishop has the full equipment sacramentally in every other way to carry out fullness of ecclesial life. Okay, 
So the bishop is the transmitter of the apostolic line. The bishop is our personal link with the apostolic foundation of the church and the fullness of apostolic ministry. We call the bishops in their diocese vicars of Christ. And I know that's shocking for many Catholics. We're used to calling the Pope alone the vicar of Christ. But in fact, each bishop in church language is understood as a vicar of Christ. A vicar means someone who rules in the absence of the Lord, of the emperor, of whoever is really ultimately in charge. And in the absence, the bodily absence of Christ, where Christ Jesus is now at the right hand of the Father and is not physically present to us, his vicar in the local church is the bishop. Of course, the Pope is the vicar of Christ in the universal sense. He is the shepherd of all the bishops, of all the vicars. So he's vicar with a capital V. Interestingly enough, the word pontiff, again, is not apply only to the Pope, but every bishop is the pontiff or the high priest. The idea of pontiff really comes from a Roman idea where the high priest, pontifex maximus, is the bridge between the gods and the people. And locally, that bridge, that high priest, is the bishop. So the book that talks about the bishop's ceremonial is called the Roman Pontifical. Okay, that just goes to show that every bishop is a pontiff. The supreme pontiff is the pope because he's the supreme bishop. So the bishop has a fullness of apostolic ministry and power, but he needs assistance. So he has two classes of assistants, of ordained ministers who share in the apostolic ministry, but they share in different ways. First, we have priests of second rank. It's only the bishop who is priest fully. But the priest of second rank is also known as a presbyter. And so the bishop decides he's going to share not only certain dimensions of the apostolic ministry with certain men, but he's going to empower certain men to also lead the community in worship in the sense of being priests, of confecting the Eucharist, of presiding at the Eucharist, and of forgiving sin. So he imparts that power to them in a sacrament of ordination and raises them to the order of priest or presbyter. It's important to understand that they are not priests in the full sense. They cannot transmit the charism of priesthood to others. They cannot duplicate themselves. If a group of priests were to lose contact with a bishop, they could not perpetuate a church. As they died out, there would be no full sacramental life. Okay? And that's really what happened in the Protestant Reformation. In denying the importance of bishops, there were very many validly ordained Catholic priests who led early Protestant communities such as Martin Luther, such as Zwingli, such as Menno Simons, who founded the Mennonites. They were all Catholic priests. But in the absence of bishops and denying even the nature of the episcopacy, once those men died out, there was no longer the sacramental power to bring about the fullness of the Eucharist and the other sacraments in the midst of those communities. So priests are dependent upon bishops for the authority and the power with which to operate. And to this day, legally speaking, priests should not hear confessions or celebrate Mass unless they have permission of the local bishop. And that permission is called faculties. So a priest traveling around the world cannot just exercise his ministry anywhere. If he's out of his local diocese, he needs the permission of the local bishop to legally exercise the fullness of his ministry. Okay? So the ministerial priest receives a share in the priesthood of the bishop which means offering the Eucharistic sacrifice and helping people to deal with sin through the sacrament of penance and through the sacrament of the sick. But there are others who the bishop ordains to apostolic ministry exclusive of priesthood, and those men are called deacons. The deacons are those who are ordained for the ministry of the word, in many cases to preach and teach. 
the ministry of service, to care for the poor, and to administer the temporal goods of the church. Early on, the deacons were the ones who held the purse strings in the ancient Roman church, for example, and that's a historic task of a deacon. But also the ministry of leading in prayer, not necessarily presiding at the Eucharist, but leading even at the Eucharist in certain prayers. So you'll see a deacon function in a Eucharistic celebration by calling out the petitions, by uh, preaching the gospel, sometimes preaching the homily. Presiding in the Roman rite, a deacon can preside at a wedding, and we'll see why in the next class. A deacon can preside at the baptism and actually be the minister of baptism. So deacons can lead sacramental worship, but not the Eucharist. They cannot preside in confession because they're not given that power by the bishop. And it's fascinating, in the ordination ceremony of the Roman Church, we use oil, sacred chrism, for the ordination of bishops and the ordination of priests. But deacons do not receive sacred chrism. Why? Because they're not being ordained for priesthood. And sacred chrism has an essential, historic, traditional connection with the idea of priesthood. Okay, so there are different grades of ministers who have different responsibilities. We have the bishop with the fullness of ministry, of apostolic ministry. He shares his priesthood with the priests. He shares his other dimensions of apostolic ministry with deacons. Deacons can advance to the priesthood. Actually, one must be a deacon prior to being ordained to the presbyterate. A deacon can be advanced by the bishop's prayer and ordination and desire to the rank of priest, and from the priests are chosen bishops. We've talked about the differing tasks of bishops and priests. Let's talk for a minute regarding the matter and form of the sacrament of ordination. First of all, the bishop alone is the ordinary minister of the sacrament of holy orders. There's a few historical exceptions, but at this point in time, and even in generally throughout the history of the church, only a bishop can ordain to any rank, including deacon. The matter of the sacrament, what is the sign that is essential for the carrying out of the sacrament? Well, it is the laying on of hands. All the other things that are used, or all the other ceremonies that are carried out, the handing of the book of the gospel to the deacon, the use of sacred chrism for the ordination of priests, these things are sacramentals. They are rites themselves that illustrate and that call down God's grace, but they're not guaranteed and necessary for the transmission of the sacrament. It is a laying on of hands. What is the form for the ordination of priests, deacons, and bishops? Well, it's a particular prayer, a consecratory prayer, that's different for each order, okay? And that prayer indicates the intention of the church in the ordination of each of these three individual people, okay? Let's talk about the status of holy orders in other Christian churches and ecclesial communities. First of all, in most Protestant churches, the Episcopal line, the Episcopal order, has never been preserved, and therefore, the Eucharist and certain sacraments or ceremonies that are carried out in various Protestant churches are not seen by us and recognized as being fully complete and valid. What we would say is the fullness of the Eucharistic mystery is not present in most Protestant churches, even when a wonderfully reverent communion service is held. How about the Eastern churches? How about the Orthodox churches that are separated from full communion with Rome? Well, there, the fullness of apostolic ministry has been preserved in a line of bishops that stretch back to the apostles. So we would recognize the various Orthodox churches as churches indeed, as sister churches. In them, all the sacraments are valid, and as far as we're concerned, our people, Catholic Christians, can receive sacraments in those churches at any time that they are allowed to. And because our level of unity is so complete as far as we're concerned, 
and Easterners, Eastern Orthodox, who come to Catholic churches can receive sacraments in our churches with no questions asked, really. Now, how about Anglicans or Episcopalians? That's kind of a hazy area. It's very complicated. They have preserved the line of Episcopal successors back to the Apostles. However, back in the 19th century, in 1896 to be exact, Pope Leo XIII did an investigation of Anglican orders and found that in the 16th century, there was a long period where the orders were transmitted invalidly. They were transmitted invalidly because even though there was a historic line of connection, the ceremony of ordination and the form, the prayer that was used, was a prayer that did not intend to convey a sacrificial ministry, a priestly ministry as understood by the church. And therefore, all the men ordained were ordained invalidly for a whole generation or more. And therefore, apostolic orders died out as far as Catholics are concerned in the Anglican Church. Now, so we considered since that point Anglican orders null and void. However, things have been a little bit complicated by the fact that since 1896, many Anglican ordinations to the episcopacy have had co-consecrators who are not Episcopalian, but rather old Catholic. There's a group of Catholic priests and bishops from about the 18th century that are in schism or not in complete communion with Rome. They're called the Old Catholics. And they have valid orders, valid bishops, and some of those bishops have consecrated Anglican bishops. And because of that, now things are a little confused. And it probably has to be reviewed on a case-by-case basis. So although Leo XIII declared all Anglican orders null and void, since then there's been some complicating factors to it all. Now, the last two things we need to talk about are rather controversial points, and that is the priesthood. Why is it exclusively male? Can it ever happen that we will have female priests in the Catholic Church? Well, the question has been asked a whole lot ever since the feminist movement began earlier in our lifetime. And in 1976, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, the Roman group of bishops and theologians that assist the Pope in teaching the Catholic Church, that congregation came out with a document to try to explain why we have exclusively male priesthood. But that did not end the discussion and debate. Debate actually grew more strident after 1976. So in 1994, John Paul II felt led to issue a letter called Ordinatio Sacerdotalis. And he intended that letter to be a definitive word on women in the priesthood. And what he says is that the church in an unbroken tradition, unbroken in scripture and in 2000 years, has seen that it is men alone that can be ordained to the priesthood and the episcopacy. You know, there are many, many questions, and I'll just throw out some of the issues that people have brought up. Many people looking back on the scriptures say, well, yes, you know, Jesus only chose men as the 12, and the early church only had men as priests because it would have been totally socially unacceptable for women to have served in that capacity. Now, that kind of evidence, that's a valid question that, that can be raised and, and needs to be debated. Other folks have said that there is some evidence that in the past there was a woman priest or a woman bishop here or there somewhere. I want to respond to both of those. First and foremost, when you go back and look at the New Testament era in ancient Israel, it's true that women in Judaism do not lead the community and do not serve as priests. However, there are a lot of things that were abhorrent to the Jewish community that Jesus did, such as break Sabbath law. Jesus didn't seem to care a whole lot how much the things he did were socially acceptable. 
So, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me that Jesus, if he wanted to have women as leading his community, would not have done so. Certainly, in the Gospels, the people who look the best are women. Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene. Yet they are not among the twelve. They are not spokesmen and official witnesses for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, when Christianity leaves Palestine and goes into the Greek cities and Roman cities of the Mediterranean, there you would expect that if it were merely a cultural thing, that women would be chosen leaders of the community. Why? Because some of the most important leaders, religious leaders of the pagan world were women. All the great prophetesses were sibyls or women. In Rome, the Vestal Virgins had a very important role in the cultic life of pagan Rome. But you know what? Paul, although he changed many things, and the early church, though it changed many things to adapt to a Gentile setting, never changed that. There was, in my view, a very clear sense that the leadership of the community had to remain male because of Jesus' choice and because of the nature of the fatherhood of those who shepherd the community. So John Paul II says definitively that women may not be ordained to the priesthood and to the episcopacy, that it is taught definitively already through what's called the ordinary universal magisterium. In other words, what bishops have done and taught universally for the last 2,000 years. So he is not issuing an infallible declaration such as the definition of dogma, but he's merely definitively being the umpire, saying that the rules already forbid this. They always have forbidden this, but you know, he's just making that clear to those who would not see it. But I would like to just point out that John Paul II says that this is a closed case. It is not open for further discussion. Catholics can really not discuss this freely and continue to propose this freely. Now, women deacons is an entirely different matter. We know that it was a very regular thing that we had women deacons in the early church. It is not clear exactly what they did besides work of charity and besides helping in the baptism of women. So we don't know a whole lot about what they did, but we know that they did exist and they could exist again. You know, this discussion is not forbidden or restricted by John Paul II's directive. However, I must point out that when it comes to women priests and bishops in the past, there is no evidence that I've ever found that there was ever regularly, in an authorized way, any women priests or bishops. If there was a woman priest or bishop, then it was most probably an aberration, whereas women deacons were recognized and legitimately authorized in the ancient church. Now, here's another issue, celibate or married priesthood. Why is it that priests need to be celibate? Well, it's important to understand that this is an entirely different question than priests, male and female. When it comes to male priesthood and episcopacy, we're talking a universal unbroken tradition. It's a question that's tied in with doctrine in Jesus' institution of the church and his choice at the beginning of the church's life. That's very different from this issue of married and celibate clergy. Jesus chose married and it would seem single people. We don't know for sure, but the tradition has it that John, the apostle, son of Zebedee, was single. But clearly, Peter was married, and most of the other apostles, if not all of them, were married. Paul, we don't know if he was unmarried or widowed, but he is clearly celibate in the way he exercises his ministry at the time that he's called. So Jesus chooses married men to serve him, and in the early church, we had bishops and priests who were married. By the fourth century, it became customary everywhere and required that bishops be celibate. In the East, priests have remained up till this day normally married. 
parish priests or married men ordained to the priesthood. In the West, it became gradual from the 4th century through the 13th, when it became very completely official, that it was preferable, and now, as of the 12th century, required for men to be celibate in order to exercise the priesthood. And the reason for this is to make the priest more available to God and the community. It's a sign of a unique and exclusive dedication to the community's needs and to the Lord. And of course, it's imitation of Christ Jesus himself who was unmarried. It is a tradition, a venerable tradition of the West and a discipline. It is not a matter of doctrine. And right now, at this point in time, there are exceptions to the rule in the West. We currently have Catholic priests who are married. We've always had Eastern Catholic priests who are married. The Maronite Church, for example, which has always been in communion with the See of Rome, has had married priests from its origins back in the patristic era to this day. In Lebanon, married priests are the norm for local parishes. Okay? But even Western priests, we've had married Western priests. Right now, there are over a hundred former Episcopal and Protestant clergy who have come into full communion with the Catholic Church and have been ordained as Catholic priests, and they are married. So it's a question really of discipline. And this is a question that is discussable by Catholics without fear of disloyalty, to discuss the relative advisability and the limitations of an exclusively celibate clergy. That's a very different thing than talking about and proposing women being ordained to the priesthood and the episcopacy. So that is really our overview of the wonderful sacrament of holy orders. In conclusion, we just have to understand that holy orders is not something that anybody has a right to. It is a responsibility and, quite frankly, a burden and a challenge. It is a gift that one accepts from the Lord for the sake of the church, not a privilege that one is entitled to. Marriage, by natural law, is a right of every adult human being, and that is something that one, by natural law, should not be impeded from being able to pursue. But holy orders is not something that one pursues for one's self-fulfillment. If a person is pursuing holy orders for purposes of self-fulfillment, they don't understand holy orders. It is something that God calls one to, that the church recognizes the call to. And it is a burden and a service. It is not a privilege. It is a great, great privilege to serve Christ in any capacity and to suffer with Christ and to exercise responsibility with Christ. But this has nothing to do with who's holier. Again, we point to the New Testament, where the holiest of all Christians is the one Mary, who simply says yes to God, who says yes to his grace, cooperates with his grace in, in the humble task of being a mother and living out a life of faith and of obedience. And that's really where all of us need to set our sights first and foremost. When it comes to ordination and ordained ministry, I think we need to do everything we can to help young people to recognize a call to these ministries. But it should never be an issue of seeking those ministries out of desire for our own advancement and fulfillment. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.